The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvic Kinase Deficiency. My name is Dr. Rachel Grace, and I'm a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. I'm also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and your host for today's episode. Welcome to part one of our PK Deficiency Caregiver Series. On this episode, we're welcoming caregiver Becky Herzog and her daughter Remy to talk about caring for and raising a child with PK deficiency. As a pediatric hematologist, I see a lot of children who have different hematologic conditions. And one of the reasons I chose pediatrics is because I really like spending time and taking care of children, and also because one of my interests is in primary and secondary prevention, where if you have a child who has a new medical condition, you work hard to try to prevent any complications or issues associated with that medical problem. And one of the reasons I chose hematology is because I find the different blood cell problems to be incredibly interesting. And I liked the combination of looking at a child, hearing story, hearing from their family, and looking at their laboratory studies and their blood cells under the microscope to figure out what's going on with them in terms of a first diagnosis or in terms of how things um, are evolving over time. So that's where my interest in pediatric hematology came from. And I also have an interest in clinical research because I'm always interested in helping to make progress in taking care of children with these different conditions. And I'm excited to see how things have progressed over the last five to 10 years in pyruvic kinase deficiency in particular. I'd like to introduce our very special guests for today's podcast, Becky Herzog, who is a caregiver of a child with pyruvic kinase deficiency, and Remy, her amazing six-year-old daughter. Thank you so much, Becky and Remy, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Could you tell us a little bit about how Remy was diagnosed with pyruvic kinase deficiency? Remy was born at 35 and 5, so 35 weeks and 5 days. She was in an emergency C-section because it was lack of progressive, her progressing. And then she had the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck at... I want to say two to three hours old, she turned jaundiced to the point where the nurses walk by and they're like, that kid needs to be admitted into the NICU. So she was jaundiced a couple of hours old. We were told like an hour afterwards that she was admitted into the NICU. She had a complete blood replacement when she was 14 hours old. And then that helped out getting her color. She got off of oxygen. She was doing better. She was discharged out of the hospital 14 days afterwards. And then we would do weekly blood tests just to check to see if it would work. On April 13th, she wouldn't hold her head up and her head or she was like yellow. So I scheduled an appointment at 545 with her pediatrician's office. By 740, we were admitted into the hospital. Her hemoglobin, I found out at a later date, was 3.3. We were life-flighted out at 11 o'clock that night to Salt Lake, and we stayed three days there. She had three transfusions, and then they did 
the all the tests that you can imagine to figure out what was going on. And I come to find out she is actually also a carrier of scarcodosis. So she has both PKD and is a carrier for scarcodosis. That sounds like it was really scary. So she was about three or four months old when that happened? She was just shy of three months old. We got the diagnosis when she was about four months old. Okay. And was that with genetic testing? It sounds like it, yes. in the end, it was genetic testing. And at that time, who talked to you about pyruvate kinase deficiency? And do you remember what they said? So Montana did not have a pediatric hematologist at that time. It was a doctor who gave me basically the name of it and said she will need blood transfusions every three to five weeks and then to go through. And then our pediatrician from there was amazing about it. We would go every four weeks and do blood tests to see. And then we would be admitted into the hospital for a day and just have blood transfusions that day. And so the original doctor who told you she had pyruvate kinase deficiency, what type of doctor was that person since there wasn't a pediatric hematologist in the area? She was the pediatric hematologist assigned to Remy. She just graduated from med school. She was in the fellowship, but she was a hematologist. And how have you found over time her care team, the care team that's taken care of her most of the time for pyruvate kinase deficiency? Remy's care team is, I had a really close connection with her last hematologist. He joked that I was the only mom who would send him medical documents. Her care team was amazing. I love her current pediatrician. We've had a couple of cardiologists. We've had a couple other specialty doctors to help out with, but her current team is good. You mentioned that you're, you were one of the only moms bringing medical papers to her doctor's appointments. Tell us a little bit more about that. What kind of papers did you bring and how did that help your conversation with the hematologist? I'm the type of person, I'm a medical nerd. I always like researching medical conditions. I am part of the Facebook group for people with pyruvate kinase deficiency. And I would find medical documents that people posted and I would send it to Remy's doctor via email and it'd be like, this is the article I found. I was like, did you know red blood cells can be created in the lungs? <laughs> and so I would send him like little articles and he would just read them and then add them onto our file. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. And do you think some of those papers impacted her care that led to monitoring studies that she might not have otherwise had or following her in a certain way that wasn't previously planned? I think so. I'm the one that has, because I'm so well connected to the PKD world that I have basically 
said, this is what other people are doing. Can we try this with Remy? In some of those cases, it's actually working for her. Other times it's not really working. But yes, I do think that has helped with the way she is treated. And did you find that all of the medical providers that you've seen are open to that? I think sometimes people are shy to bring things forward, things that they've read about or medical papers they've seen that they're a little bit reluctant or shy to bring those to providers. And I'm wondering if everybody was open to that in your experience. The best advice I can give somebody is when it comes to it, everybody is usually open. But at the same time, I have this conversation saying, I trust you, you're her doctor. Most of them understand where I'm coming from. I spent hours researching, days researching this. So they're willing to listen and they understand. And they always say, I know Remy best because I see her day to day. So some are extremely open. I think I've only had maybe one doctor that wouldn't transfuse her because her levels weren't low enough but she was symptomatic. And you had mentioned, it sounds like she's had a few different primary hematology providers, but you mentioned other specialists that she's seen, cardiologists, she sees her pediatrician, maybe there's nurses in the infusion unit and other providers she sees too. And I'm wondering how you found these different providers collaborate and work together to help keep Remy healthy. Her primary doctor is really good on being involved with multiple specialties. That's the main reason why we went with her. But her hematologist is monitoring everything when it comes to it. Her hematologist is the one that recommends who we go see and who they work with. Her old hematologist was amazing. He strongly recommended because she's seen audiology and she has every six months for her eyes. Can't remember that doctor's name. And then she's had dermatology and then cardiology. Those are her four major ones that we go see. And is there a social worker or psychologist that's part of her visit sometimes as well? We have had two social workers since Remy has switched to this hospital. They're both amazing. One of them comes in every time we go there. They always make sure that we don't need anything. She's always so friendly. And the other one would always sneak Remy's special gifts to make her visit better. I have to find her a psychologist because I'm really worried about her mental state when she becomes an adult and let her work through the PTSD. It has gotten better. Her nurses have worked so hard with her. It also helps that she sees the same nurses every time. You mentioned earlier that she receives regular transfusions, and I'm wondering what strategies you've used to try to help make those easier over time. It's so difficult in children and wondering about venous access and how you've navigated that and even just the trauma of needing to come back every month and or every so often in a predictable way, knowing that there's going to be a poke and what's associated with it. So we are lucky. We are so lucky that her nurses are amazing. Remy's had two porter calves and she got the last one removed because it got infected. I'm a strong believer that it's her body so she can decide if she wants a port or if she wants to get poked on her arm. I ask her if she wants it and she keeps on saying her arm is fine. So when it comes to her pokes, this is a challenge. I'm not going to lie. I believe if she gets transfused at a higher number, she is less scared to get poked. So we try to transfuse anything above eight is an automatic transfusion for her. Our hospital is really lucky. They have an IV team, which comes in with the ultrasound machine 
they find the good vein and then they do the numbing part and Remy holds still for the whole entire thing now because as long as she has the IV team she is perfectly fine she is also a very hard poke her veins are like mine mine are small and they hide so that's always fun (laughs) and then prior to going she knows we always do a special breakfast at the hospital in the cafeteria. She's made friends with the cafeteria staff. So they always give her ice cream. She always get basically whatever when it's transfusion day, I let her have whatever she wants. And we bring toys. The biggest part was when she was a baby, we would have to hide toy or we would switch out her toys. So she would, it would be like getting new toys every time she went there. Maybe you could explain to people what a porta is just in case they're not familiar. The best way I can describe it is a basically a button underneath her skin that goes directly into a vein. Instead of having multiple pokes with your arm, it's usually one poke and then you're done. It was honestly scary when Remy's port got infected because we didn't know what was. I went into the one ER. They sent us home with a popsicle and just told us she'll be fine. They didn't even check her port and she had a fever of 102 at that time. So the next day I called her hematologist and he got us in right away. They tested her port and then they admitted us the next hour for antibiotics. If I could do it again, as Remy as a baby, I would go with the portacath because it was so much easier for her. You didn't have to cry and get held down for multiple pokes. As you've met with your pediatric hematologist, I know you must have received guidance about what are the things that are important to look out for at home and what are important things to call your providers about. Can you share those things that you've been looking out for at home and what types of things you've called providers for in the past? We are lucky. Nothing really bad has happened after it. When she had her porter calf, it was anything, an unknown fever. We were at the hospital. And we were lucky that was only once or twice. They always say now if her arm starts to hurt, we always watch it very closely. And we always, like when she has a headache and if medicine doesn't go away, we always watch it very closely. I also am the type of mom who, if she has a cold, I let her care team know just in case. And they're always willing to see us if worst case scenario. In the setting of a cold, What kinds of things are you worried about in terms of her pervic kinase deficiency? With Remy's case, Remy can drop super fast. So we're always watching her. So if she does not get better, we go to the emergency room if her hematology is not open. And then her ferritin will go sky high, usually. Just a mild cold will send her ferritin. I think that's when it reached 2100 was when she had a cold. She did have food poisoning in the beginning of this year. And we watched her for a few days and she wasn't getting better. So we had to go to the ER. And she says that she would rather do a blood transfusion at her doctor's office versus the ER. Because her levels, I think they dropped down to five by the end of that. So when your child is sick, you really got to watch out for your lower hemoglobins. As you've seen different providers over the years, have you received helpful resources from those providers in terms of pyruvate kinase deficiency specifically or about transfusions or 
chelation or even managing as a family in the setting of having a child with a chronic medical condition. They always tell me your kid the best. So what works for your kid won't work for another kid, especially with PKD. When we were with Salt Lake for about a year, they really just told me to find a support group and talk to them and see what would be the best. Through that support group, I found more information on how it would work. And so every doctor that I've ever talked to would be a support group. That makes sense. It does. Are there patient groups that you're a part of now that are helpful in learning more about pyruvate kinase deficiency and connecting with people whose children have it or who have it themselves? So I am the type of person because Remy is the only one in the state of Montana that I know of. Whenever I see a post about a new mom with PKD, I know it's scary. It is so scary about this. It's so unknown. The best advice I give them is I'm always here to talk. If I don't know the answer, I will find the answer for them. I call it my PKD support group friends, basically my group. And they consist of adults with PKD. So I ask them questions because I always want to know what's going to happen in the future. And Remy has a couple of friends with PKD that she has seen pictures with and is excited to meet them so she doesn't feel alone. The biggest part is don't feel alone. I think that's so important. And it's amazing that there are multiple patient groups now for people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency, and it's becoming easier to connect with other people over time who have pyruvate kinase deficiency, which it is so hard to be the only one in a practice who has this diagnosis or the only person you know who has this diagnosis. I was so thankful that her doctor actually knew about PKD, both of them. I was so thankful about that. I think something that's hard for families when first getting a diagnosis in their child of pyruvate kinase deficiency is having a sense of the big picture in terms of what's their childhood going to be like having pyruvate kinase deficiency. And we talked about symptoms to look out for and the potential need for transfusions and potential for chelation. But I wondered if you could talk about all the things that Remy does. I know the listeners can't see, but she's bouncing in the room on the bed <laughs> as we're talking. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of activities she likes to do, what she likes to do for fun. Actually, Remy wants to answer these. Oh, great. What kind of activities do you like to do? I like to play some Monopoly. She likes playing Monopoly. I love to play at parks. And go to parks. What about swimming? I love swimming. She loves to go swimming. I like to play outside. Yep. She just learned how to ride a two-wheeler. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she's doing her bike a lot. She loves playing with her dog and her cat. That sounds like fun. You sound really busy between swimming and biking and going to the playground and playing outside. Oh, yes. We're really lucky All of her cousins live in Billings, where we are from. And so she has three cousins that are two years apart from her. So she plays a lot with her cousins. That sounds really fun. Remy, do you go to school or not yet? I'm homeschooled. Oh, homeschooled. That sounds like fun too. Oh, yeah. We homeschool my nieces also. So it helps that she has homeschooling buddies. That's great. And we're getting involved with the co-op here. That sounds good. There's probably lots of opportunities then to go outside too as part of your day and be busy. Yes. I believe that she will learn when she feels good. 
And so it's hard for me because I don't understand how PKD feels. So I try not to push her to do certain activities if she doesn't feel good. One topic that I think is an important one that is present in a lot of parents' minds right now is thinking about the management of pyruvate kinase deficiency and new opportunities for treatment and old supportive treatments too. And thinking about, for example, transfusions and splenectomy and participating potentially in clinical trials of new treatments. And I wondered if you were comfortable commenting on your thoughts around that and your conversations with providers. I think there's a lot of challenging decision-making around this right now. Of course. When it comes to splenectomies, I'm against it because that, like I said before, I am such a, it's her body, her choice on this. The only thing I'm going to make her do is get her vaccinations. So this splenectomy is so life-changing in general to the point where I told all of the doctors that I will not think about it or talk about it until she's at least nine years old. When it comes to the treatments or the new trials, I'm the one that has brought it up to the doctors because I'm like, why can't we try this versus the splenectomy? to see if it would work. We are currently trying to get on one trial right now. We are waiting for the final okay from Arizona. So we'll be traveling down to Arizona once a month for three months. So I'm excited for that. That sounds exciting. I think you're in good company with many other families that find decision-making around splenectomy very challenging. It's hard if your child can't have part of the say in that decision, that they're too young to give their thoughts. So it's definitely a difficult decision. And we know in pyruvate kinase deficiency that splenectomy doesn't resolve the need for transfusions in everybody. That is maybe the majority for a period of time, at least, but not everybody. And that there's definitely continued red blood cell breakdown even after splenectomy. So it's not like with other red blood cell issues, other hemolytic red cell issues where the red cells break down, um, where the splenectomy can really kind of cure or fix most of the issues for pervic kinase deficiency, it's different. And so then it makes it a much more difficult decision. Remy, I had another question for you. Do you have tips for kids who also need blood transfusions, things that help you when you need a blood transfusion? Sloth. Her sloth. Remy has comfort animal, a comfort stuffed animal that we bring to every transfusion. It's everywhere we're, or everything with her. Sloths are her favorite animal, which I think is awesome. She's had this for about three years or four years now. And it's her comfort animal, her best friend. So as long as she has sloppy, she is fine. She also brings her iPad. That sounds like a good combination to me. Thank you for showing me Slothy. You're welcome. That does sound like a good strategy for going to appointments is to bring something special from home that helps give you comfort. Are there things that you would want to share with other families or parents of children with pyruvate kinase deficiency that you wished you had known? Actually, yes. Blood reactions, because Remy had a blood reaction before, are scary. They happened within 15 minutes of her transfusion, it started. And she was covered head to toe, literally with hives. Blood reactions are where your body has basically an allergic reaction to the blood you 
or receiving. Luckily, her care team was there anyways, doing vitals every... That's Okay, so that's part of the reason why they do vitals every 15 minutes to monitor it. Also, when it comes to your child's care, trust your gut. You know your child better than anybody. I can usually tell Remy's hemoglobin. I'm usually off by 0.1 or 2. I think that's really good advice. I do think that, of course, parents know their children best and are the best advocates also for their children in terms of what they need. And of course, also have bigger view of their children in terms of their activity every day and whether something's different than it was before, their behavior is different, their concentration's different and seeing how or if a hemoglobin change is having an impact on their every day. And so I think clinicians listening to parents and then parents feeling like they are their children's best advocate and really need to speak up if they're noticing that something's different or give a call to the provider if something seems different, if they don't have a visit and making sure they're raising important issues for their family at the different visits. Yes. I think that is the most important thing. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing Remy's story and your story. I think hearing your perspective is going to be so helpful to so many other families and hearing your experiences with pyruvate kinase deficiency will be helpful for the whole community. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. I always love helping other caregivers and helping other families because yes, we are rare, but you're not alone anymore. I'd like to thank our guests, Becky Herzog and Remy, for talking with us on part one of our caregiver series. Before we close, I wanted to talk with you about a few things that would be helpful for caregivers of people with pyruvate kinase deficiency to know. And I think one of the most important things is that if you yourself have pyruvate kinase deficiency or your family member does, then you know yourself or your family member so much better than your practitioner does. They're the clinician who helps to take care of you or your family member. And even if you've known that person for a very long time and they know you or your family member very well, you know yourself better. And so it's important for you to really advocate for yourself during your appointments and to bring forward the most important things for you about pyruvate kinase deficiency at those visits and to bring attention to symptoms or things that are new over time because your primary hematologist may not know what's most important or may not know what has changed, even if it's subtle or something that a teacher's noticed or that another family member's noticed over time. I think too, it's important for people to know the different signs and symptoms of anemia and times where there's increased hemolysis, looking for symptoms of a lower hemoglobin or of red cell breakdown with a higher bilirubin or jaundice, yellow of the skin or of the eyes. And then also times where there could be symptoms of a complication of pyruvate kinase deficiency and just being aware of what those issues might be, whether they're related to gallbladder or or other issues. And then I think too, just in terms of being aware of if you've had a splenectomy, the signs and symptoms of infection so that you bring yourself to medical attention right away if you have a fever due to the risk of a serious infection. So just being aware of that as a lifelong issue. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is nokenowpkdeficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.